anytime you're holding yourself back, it's a moment of holding yourself in where part of you wants to be expressed. Hello, welcome to Active Ingredient, a podcast all about personal and professional growth. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'm a deeply curious person who's on a mission to help us all come home to ourselves, to truly come alive and to live lives that we genuinely love. I'm also the founder of Nude Nation, a brand building and PR agency that exists to help mission-driven brands and founders get clear on their why and spread their truth far and wide across media, podcasts, speaking engagements, and so much more. I started this podcast because I was so desperate to find my purpose. I wanted to interview people who I felt figured it out because honestly, I wanted that for myself too. And what I've learned along the way is that the answers are all internal, every single one of them. We find them in the silence. Validation is fleeting if you don't validate yourself first. And the more we nurture the relationship with ourselves and learn to listen to the deep voice inside and actually act from that place, the more the external starts to reflect the internal alignment. I believe that the more we can integrate ourselves holistically, the more whole we'll feel, which is why this podcast is a mix of my greatest loves, personal and professional growth. You can expect conversations that range from how to deal with imposter syndrome or how to build your confidence, as well as tips and tools on how to get your message out there in the world. My biggest wish for you is that you prioritize your joy, see yourself first, and that you come alive every single day. Welcome to Active Ingredient. I am so glad you're here. Hello, welcome back to Active Ingredient. We have another amazing episode, you guys. I know that I've been talking about this a ton on my stories. I am so excited to be releasing the episode with truly one of my favorite authors ever. I'm going to try to make this intro short because I really want to get to the actual interview. But this was a truly surreal moment for me because I really genuinely, and I know you guys know this because I talk about this all the time on the show, but there are very few books that I would say like are the ones that really have helped me kind of level up in my personal growth, personal development. I mean, I talk a lot about a lot of books, but there's very few that I would say are the ones that actually like really, really changed my perspective or opened me up to a blind spot that like I genuinely did not see that was limiting me. And Gay's work is that for me. I was introduced to his work via my friend Liz Tran, who also has an amazing podcast called Reset. And she talks about gay all the time. So I I read his books from her recommendation and I could I just couldn't stop consuming his work because it's just, you know, when something's just so true and you like literally can't get enough of it, that is the feeling and vibe that I get with his books and his work and his terms, like the things that he's been able to identify as like human traits that we all do in a very easy to digest and easy to spot way, which I think is the most important thing in order to actually like grow through it. He is a master of that. And to say that like I was literally in his home with him and his wife doing this podcast is really a testament to when your heart is in the right place. Incredible, incredible, incredible things happen. I left that whole situation being like, life is crazy. Life is actually insane. And if you genuinely are coming from a good place, if you really are doing it for the right reasons, I promise you the universe conspires to help you 
get to these heights that you didn't even think possible. And this interview, and I say it in the beginning, and I said it to Gay, I don't know how many times throughout the day that I was with him, like I could not believe it. Like I literally had to just like continue to pinch myself because I could not believe that I got to meet him, that we are both on the earth at the same time. I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode. So this week's episode is with, like I've said, Gay Hendricks, who is a PhD. He is the author of several books, but throughout this conversation specifically, we talk about the books, The Genius Zone and The Big Leap. And The Big Leap is definitely one that I talk a ton about on this podcast. I actually did an episode on the three books that changed my perspective and my life and have really helped me on my journey with growth. The Big Leap is definitely one of them. And every single person that has read it, that heard the recommendation or whatever, they literally were like, oh my God, this is just such truth. So we talk about both of those books throughout this conversation. And I wanted to call out in the intro that there's a term that we say throughout the conversation that I feel like we didn't really give enough context in the conversation if you've not read his work. So I just want to very like clearly talk about what it is. So within The Big Leap, he references something that he's identified as the upper limit problem. And it's a term that was coined by Gay. And it's basically that we each have a limit on how much abundance success and love that we think that we're deserving of. It's an unconscious thing. We don't like consciously do this, but there's a thermostat within every single one of us that basically it's like kind of like the limit of what we think we're deserving of receiving. And when it supersedes that, like whenever we're in a place where maybe we're receiving more abundance or love or success, Gay has been able to identify this moment as the upper limit problem where a lot of human tendency is to self-sabotage or to walk it back a few steps to get back into a comfort zone. So I'm going to let him talk about more about the upper limit problem, but we basically kind of just like jump into it, assuming that people know what the upper limit problem is. And I'm going to weave it into this podcast episode again to remind you in case you're at that point and you're like, what are they talking about again? It's the upper limit problem. And it's something that we all honestly should really get familiar with because we every single one of us experiences this. I highly recommend you actually read the book because he gives really great examples in the book of historic moments that it was clear from a psychological perspective, like that that person was going through their upper limit problem and self-sabotaged to get back into a comfort zone. So the upper limit problem is what the big leap that book is all about and how to move through it, how to be able to spot it, how to be able to befriend it and get comfortable in different zones of growth. And that to me is such a, that's why I always say that it's one that really like resonated with me. And it was such a pivotal moment in my growth journey because being able to spot it is just like such a key step to be able to get to that next phase. So I just wanted to call that out. The upper limit problem is basically the resistance that happens when you're reaching new levels of success. So with that, Gay, thank you truly so much for being on this show. I am beyond grateful for your generous time, for the work that you do, for enlightening us all really with just this wisdom and your ability to also share your truth, which I know your story is just, you know, there's a reason every single one of us walks this earth. And I'm so grateful that for your reasons, you're able to open up to the level that you're able to open up to share where you came from, why you were the one that had this, you know, aha. And everyone listening, I'm telling you, 
this conversation doesn't even scratch the surface of gay's work. So grab a copy. I'm not paid at all to say this. I'm just saying this because I want this truly for everyone. So again, thank you, Gay. And I hope that you guys all enjoy this conversation. And yeah, with that, Gay Hendricks, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. This is literally a highlight in my career and my life. Mm. So I'm really grateful. Well, glad to have you here in our beautiful home. Your home is so happy and it's so vibrant and it's so colorful and unique and actually a great segue for my first question, which is what you were like as a kid <laughs> that you remember. This place is giving me such playful vibes. Like even outside, you have so many cool sculptures and playful things. So I'm curious what you were like as a kid, qualities that you remember. The aesthetics here in our house and our backyard and the sculptures and everything I want to give most of the credit of that to my wife because uh, she, Katie, is always scouting. I grew up in um, a small town in central Florida. It was a town of about 10,000 people, and it was in an area where orange groves and fishing and watermelons and all sorts of agricultural things were grown. My mother was a newspaper reporter, a single parent. I have one older brother. I was like as a kid was shaped by one big factor. During my mother's pregnancy with me, my father died unexpectedly at age 32. And so my mother went from being a happy housewife, basically, to being a widow with uh, my older brother, who was seven years older, $300 in the bank. So she went through a tremendous period of stress. And what happened apparently is um, she quit eating for a while and uh, went while pregnant a, with you. Yeah, while pregnant with me, and, and uh, somehow reset some thyroid and pituitary thermostats in me, so that when I came out, I gained weight very easily, and so I became the only fat person in a family of skinny people. My mother skinny as a rail, my brother was skinny as a rail, but finally, when I was twenty four, I had a big enlightenment experience. And changed everything in my life and lost 100 pounds and sort of became the person I am now. So anyway, to make a long story short, I spent some of my time as a kid just doing regular kid stuff, but part wrestling with this whole obesity thing. That's so interesting. It also just makes me think about just intergenerational traumas and how so many times I feel like we put the quote unquote blame on ourselves or we think that like we're the reason for a lot of these things. And I don't know, hearing that story just makes me really think like, okay, there are so many things that happened before our time. You were literally in the womb, had no idea that this was going to be an outcome for you. And like learned about this so much later, just makes me think of all the other things that we might be dealing with. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I really have great respect for those early influences, you know, either during pregnancy or during your early years of life because of the it gave me a gift, though, in a way, because when I was finally able to handle it and take off all the weight and get a healthy body and keep a healthy body, it really let me know that human beings really have an incredible power to reinvent themselves no matter what happened. Because even though I never got the medical aspect of it handled, I found a whole different spiritual way, I would say, of dealing with it rather than dealing with it through chemically or, mm -hmm. or through medicines. Which has literally turned out to be your life's work and yeah. your life's path. So talk to me about this enlightenment at 24. What happened? What was the impetus? Set a scene of what, what that period was like. 
So I weighed 300 pounds. By contrast, uh, I weigh about 180 now, and uh, I'm about six feet tall. So I was more than 100 pounds overweight, and I had really imploded my life in a lot of other ways, too. I was working at a really stressful job that I didn't really like where I was living. I didn't like the person I was living with. I was trying to figure out how to get out of this very entangled, toxic relationship I was in for three or four years in my early 20s. Also, here I was carrying this extra 100 pounds and smoked heavily, smoked cigarettes. Fortunately, I didn't drink. I've never had a taste for alcohol, or otherwise I would have probably abused that one too. But everything was going wrong in my life. And I went out for a walk. I was 24 years old, and I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head after having a big argument with the, the woman I lived with at the time. I lived on the campus of a little school for delinquent boys of 100 students. And so this afternoon, I went out for a walk, and it was a winter afternoon, and it had snowed, and there was some snow that was on top of a sheet of ice. And I didn't see the sheet of ice under the snow, and I stepped on the thing, and my feet shot out from under me, and I went, boom, down on my back. I hit my head, but I didn't knock myself out. But I did see stars for a minute. You actually do see stars when you hit your head. I, I'd never believed that. I thought that was just in comic books. But anyway, I banged my head, didn't knock myself out. But if you can imagine, 300 pounds is about what a refrigerator weighs. You know, so to have, boom, crashing down on the, it just sort of knocked me out of I call it uh, an out of Hendrix experience because <laughs> it wasn't knocked out, but I, I was knocked out of my ego or something for two minutes. And during this two minutes, the most amazing thing happened. It was like I had x-ray vision. I could see down through all the layers of me that I'd never noticed before. I could see that there was a layer of fat, of course, but underneath that were all these feelings that I had never even realized I had. Old things I was angry about, about my father dying and the being fat and all that. Grief about loss of my father and other people that I had. I was very close to my grandmother and she had just passed away, so I felt really kind of rootless in a way, and I felt all this grief. And then down underneath that, I could feel all this fear about, oh my God, what if I'm going to die at 32 like my father did? You know, I'm only 24 now, but I can see it's going in the same direction because when my father died, he smoked heavily. He was in a relationship that probably wasn't so great with my mother. And so I was sort of reliving his life, I think, unconsciously, even though I'd never known him in person. Anyway, during this two minutes, I saw down through all these levels of feelings in myself, which I'd never paid attention to before. I was not into psychology or anything like that. Anyway, in this moment, here's the, where the magic happened, though. As I was feeling all these feelings, I was laying there on my back, and I began to feel Another thing inside me that I'd never realized before that I would call it now spirit or soul or my word for it now is essence. You know, it's just the the essence of who I was without any programming on it. It was who everybody is born with, this, uh, this incredible pure consciousness that doesn't have any programming on it. And I felt that. And it was electrifying because I'd never felt anything like that before. For me, you know, I was not into religion or anything like that. You know, I was mostly 
eh, <laughs> you know, yeah. agnostic kind of person. But this was something I could feel. You know, it wasn't something they were talking about in church. This was a pure consciousness I could feel. And I realized that's who I really am and all the other stuff that had been overlaid on me. But what, here was my thought, what if I could redesign my life from this open, spacious, pure consciousness place? So that was the thought I had during the two minutes. And then I started to feel like I was coming back. I could feel, oh, I'm cold. I'm laying on the ice. I'm shivering. Oh, my God, I want a cigarette. Oh, my God, I got to go back to the apartment, you know, and go back into that toxic space, you know. And I could feel all these levels of that. But then I did this one thing that I think saved my life. I said kind of to the universe or to myself or to God or somebody, I said, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to figure out how to create my life so I can feel that pure consciousness in every moment of my life. That was my commitment. I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that because that was brand new for me. That was something that I'd never experienced before. And so right there, all these wonderful, magical things started to happen. So a friend of mine, Neil Marinello, God bless him, he called me one afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, said, hey, I'm going up to near your house, 30 miles away, Webster Lake, New Hampshire, to visit an old college professor of mine that was my favorite professor at Harvard. And I said, okay. He said, well, it's not just like I'm going to visit an old professor. He's gone to India and had a whole big life transformation. And I want to find out what that's all about because he was my favorite psychology professor. And so I said, okay, that sounds interesting. So he picked me up and we rode up the road to this beautiful estate on the lake, Webster Lake. And um, I walk into this place with Neil and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. There's a bunch of people and they're all dressed in Indian saris and yoga clothes, you know, but this is like back in the 60s. This mm-hmm. was before yoga clothes yeah. were you know, yeah, yeah. invented, but they all had these flowing silk garments on. And it was probably about a dozen young people, maybe in their 20s or 30s. And there was Neil's professor, Richard Alpert, now going under the name Ramdas. And wow. he had just come back from India and he had these robes on and he was just high as a kite from that experience. And he sat down, we sat down in a circle with him, and he basically talked for three hours without any notes. And I was a teacher, you know, I'm used to going into classes with my three pages of notes, you know, and everything. And here was this guy, he's just there and he's talking about life and meditation and spirituality and all these things that were completely new to me. But what blew me away was, where is he getting this from? Because he would just occasionally, he'd close his eyes and, and then he'd look at a picture of his guru, who's kind of a grizzled older man uh, that he had an eight by 10 glossy headshot up. And he would look at the picture and then just trip off again. And he would go for 45 minutes just talking about these amazing ideas. And then he'd come to a halt and he'd go back inside and then he'd do it again. So anyway, I went up to him afterwards. I said, where do you get this stuff from? <laughs> you know? Like, what's the source? Where, where, where are you getting it? And, and he said, well, he'd visited his, this guru and had sort of gotten plugged into this universal wisdom through meditation. And 
yoga and that kind of thing. And the stuff just came out, you know, and that, that's what he was talking about now. It just, you know, he said, he, he says, I'm a teacher and now I open my mouth and this is what comes out. That was pretty amazing to me, just hearing that, because that rearranged my paradigm of where wisdom comes from. But and I it landed for you, because I feel like a lot of times people could hear that and maybe even listeners and be like, I don't know, that sounds like very woo, but for you in that room, I guess because you saw it firsthand, it landed. You were like, no, some, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from somewhere. And also, having had this experience lying down on the ice the day before, right. I could feel what he was talking about. And I don't think I could have done that the day you know right. earlier. But the interesting thing was, during this whole three hours, I was not aware of wanting a cigarette or anything like that. You know, it was in a different space. So anyway, I went up to him afterwards and uh, I said, uh, you know, I may never see you again. Turned out, I, you know, we became friends later, many years later. But I said, I may never see you again, but could you just check me out and give me whatever advice you could give me? I'd like to know how to put all this stuff into action. And it was really great. He said, I recommend that you do a lot of breathing and yoga practices and do a lot of meditation. He said, in India, people, you know, over here, you might go to therapy for something like that. And that's a good thing. But over there, you might go to a month of breathing practices for something like that, mm -hmm. you know. And that was strange. I had never heard of anything like that. I wasn't into yoga or anything. But here's the thing that happened. I said, well, where would I find something like that? And he made this little dismissive gesture with his hand. He said like, oh, don't worry, something will come to you. And then he turned to talk to somebody else, you know, and it was like, that was it. And so I was at the grocery store later. I was standing in line waiting to check out with my little cart and everything. And I looked to my left and there was a little kiosk of paperback books. And one of them was called Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. What it was was an entire book of yoga, breathing, meditation, exactly how to meditate. You know, it was just one instruction after the other. So I bought it and I went home and it was maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. And so I just sat down and I started doing the book, you know, one page after the other. I did all the yoga postures and that was good. And then I came to the chapter on breathing and I did all the breathing processes they talked about. And then I came to the chapter. I st was doing all these. By the time I got to the meditation chapter, it was about midnight or so. The first meditation was the simple one. You were just to close your eyes and to use a word like om, om. And just any time you found yourself thinking, just go back to om, om. And so I did that for about two minutes. And immediately I got back into that space I'd been in when I fell on the ice. The same level, though? That's exactly. It was like it took really? me into that same new room. You know, it was like a new room with the lights on it for the first time on the ground there. But then the next day, as soon as I meditated, the lights turned on again in there. It was just like the going inside with a kind of an open-hearted non-critical way of being inside. You know, before I was mostly critical of what went on inside me, right. certainly critical of my 300-pound body that wouldn't stop being fat. And <laughs> so that was a, a magic moment. And I started doing this thing, uh, you know, it's probably the most radical diet anybody's ever done. I started eating foods 
Every time I would get hungry, I would eat a food that felt like it would increase that light inside, that pure essence, pure consciousness space. I, in other words, I would say, okay, is this food going to turn on that light or dim that light? And most of the stuff I had been eating, I just stopped eating because I realized that, like, see, for me at the time, lunch was a cheeseburger, some French fries, and a vanilla malt. You know, that was the kind of food I lived on. Now, suddenly, I'm eating vegetables and fruits. And so that's when I went on this radical diet of feeding my spirit, feeding that pure consciousness for a year. And as a result, I lost more than 100 pounds. And another thing happened, uh, Sophie, which was that my eyesight improved. I'd always had to wear glasses to pass my driving test. But the next time I went to pass my driving test, I found to my surprise that I didn't need glasses for it. And so my vision changed. And I'd worn glasses since I was in the third grade. Like so many magical things started to happen during that year of change. It wasn't without its upsets, you know, because I had this relationship I had to win my way out of, and I had this job that I needed to win my way out of. But all the new stuff I was learning every day, it was so much more important than any of the painful stuff I was going through. It was like a gravitational pull. But I am curious, though, for like those things that were part of it that were kind of the setbacks that you're talking to, because I feel like I relate so hard on having moments in life where you feel I've never hit my head or like, I don't think had, that sounds like an enlightening experience. Like that's so clear and pure that's coming from that place. I think I've reached heights before. And I think the reason why I'm even a seeker is because I felt something in there and I'm constantly trying to like reach that. But I do find, and this is kind of like going into the upper limit problem that like, I don't know if this is what would happen in your setbacks, but that like sometimes when you're like doing all those things, eating the thing that nourishes your soul, then you get to a place of feeling just in connection with that source for those moments that you were like having those setbacks in the year. How would you identify that? Because at that time you didn't know what the upper limit problem was. So how did you then come back? Okay. Jumping in here really quick, just to remind you guys that when we reference the upper limit problem... This is something that Gay references in his book, The Big Leap, consistently. And what it means is that we each have an upper limit problem. It's basically the the thermostat within every single one of us that we we basically each have a limit of how much abundance, success, and love we think that we're deserving of. And the upper limit problem is when we've reached that height and then maybe even superseded it. And then we kind of just want to like walk it back or like self-sabotage to bring ourselves back into a zone that we feel comfortable with. This is a a normal human reaction. And this is just a term that we say throughout this podcast. So reminder, upper limit problem, just the thermostat on us accepting how much abundance, success, and love that we think we're deserving of. And it basically is like the thing that we need to work through in order to be able to get to that next phase. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, actually, I that helped me figure out the upper limit problem because I had this one terrible moment. I was about a month into my new feeding my spirit diet. And I'd lost 30 pounds. I'd lo- I think a little over 30 pounds. I'd been losing a pound a day. That was mind boggling, first of all, without being, quote, being on a diet. Right. You know, uh, I mean, it was a radical diet, but it wasn't a diet so much. But that was, I was feeling so great. And I went down to Cambridge, Mass, and I was going to uh, the, a bookstore in Harvard Square. I 
looked to my left and I was passing an ice cream shop and, and there was this family of four in there and they were eating this gigantic ice cream banana split with three different kinds of ice creams and everything. And I was like, I went into a trance and I completely forgot my intentions. And I went in there and I ordered one of those for myself, an entire one. And I went wild over the next 20 minutes. Like I say, it was like a trance. And so I'm spooning ice cream into myself. And then all of a sudden, I got so high from the sugar that I actually had to stand up and walk around. I remember doubling over in the street because somebody said, are you okay, sir? You okay? And (laughs) I definitely was not okay, but it wasn't for the reason they thought. But I, I was having this huge stomach ache. And that made a really big impact on me. That one moment I could be feeling so great, and then I could make an unconscious choice that sent me down into the pits again. Mm-hmm. It took me about three days to get that toxic feeling out of my body from the, uh, the ice sugar cream. High. Yeah, from the sugar high. But that taught me a big lesson. And I actually did another miniature version of it. A friend of mine who was also very obese came to visit me and he knew I lost a bunch of weight. By then I'd probably lost 65 pounds or so. Mm. And so I was looking like a whole different person. So Ken, uh, bless his heart, came to visit me and he brought some weed and a five pound box of caramels. At the time, I was quite a weed connoisseur. and uh, <laughs> It didn't take much of that to want to make me eat right. <laughs> those chocolate chewy caramels. And so I had this setback there where I suddenly realized, oh, there are people in my life that I'm going to have to do without. Because he thought that was really funny, you know, like sabotaging somebody else, that was what turned him on. You know, he's kind of a practical joking kind of guy. So I actually ended up having to ask the guy to leave. And I just, I just couldn't tolerate that, you know, and I realized what had happened. And I think that was one of my last big upper limit moments on that year of losing all that weight. You know, it's the interesting thing about the upper limit problem. Once you start spotting it, Spotting it the first time is kind of hard, but then the second time is easier, and the third time is easier, and pretty soon you begin to see it more and more. So that's like in a lot of our trainings, we tell people the first time catching it is great, and it gets easier after that, because eventually you can see where even things like worry thoughts are an upper limit problem. You'll get to feeling a certain level of good, and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what about what about tomorrow? Oh my gosh, what about da da da? You know, what if? Totally. And, or you get to obsessing about something that happened in the, in the past. Right. And one thing after 77 years on this planet, I can guarantee people is that you have absolutely no control over the past or the future, actually. In the present, you can do some planning for the future, but most people go around catastrophizing about what's going to happen and are things that they have absolutely no control over. But what is a tangible next step from when you've identified it? Because you're saying it gets easier, but what is the actual next step? Because sometimes I find myself and I'm like, I think, I think I'm open right now. I can't mm-hmm. tell. It's the same one that keeps happening over and over again. So what is a tangible next step for someone who is now in a place where they can identify when they're in that zone that's holding them back? What's the next step? The next step is to identify the fear you're feeling in your body. Every time you're in an upper limit situation, you're feeling scared about something. 
In the big leap, I talk about three or four of the major fears that are under there. But the move is, let's say, think of the upper limit problem that you spot as a balloon that's attached to a string, and the string is attached to your fear. And so the moment you can un unlax your fear, you can open up and feel your fear and talk about it and feel it, that lets the string go and the balloon goes away because you're not engaged with the thing that actually is causing the upper limit problem anymore. Fear is a big thing because human beings have had the fear wiring in our body for millions of years. And for millions of years, there were only a few responses to fear. In the cave person days, if you got scared, you threw rocks at the people that in the mm -hmm. next cave over, you know, that were hassling you or vice versa. Or if they were the ones with the bigger rocks, you fleed instead of fight. So fight and flee are two big wired in responses. However, there are two other, we call them the four F's. There are four expressions of fear and two of them are fight and flight, but the other two are faint and freeze. I don't mean just necessarily keeling over in a faint, but faint might mean getting spaced out, not being able to think straight, not being able to not being able to come up with a logical response at the time. That's faint. Freeze is just kind of eyes wide, locked up, mind comes to a halt mm -hmm. kind of thing. So memorize those four expressions of fear and figure out which ones you do. Because some people are fighters when they get scared, you know, they come out angry, but they're scared underneath that. Every time you're angry, you're also scared underneath that. And nine times out of 10, there's also something you're hurt or sad about too. But I can guarantee you if two people are mad at each other, down in their bellies, they've got fear and contraction going on down there, and fighting is one way of dealing with that. Here in the modern era, we have another possibility. Instead of me throwing a rock at you if you ask me an embarrassing question now, <laughs> I can say, oh, I'm embarrassed by that question. I can communicate about right. that. In our human-to-human -human interactions, we need to get better at identifying what we're scared about and communicating about that rather than blowing off anger at each other all the time. But most people, you know, like we've seen probably close to 5,000 couples now in our seminars or here in our offices, when couples come in, they're often locked at the anger level. They've been angry at each other about some things, but what they haven't gotten to is the deeper heartaches and the deeper fears that are underneath anger. On one of our websites that advertises our e-courses, we have a, a video from a guy, a business person, who said, one word I learned from your course changed my marriage. That word was saying, I'm scared, instead of, why are you doing this again, honey? You know, you know I don't like it when dinner's 15 minutes late. You know, instead of all those kind of ragging on the other person, he had learned to identify his fear. You know, instead of saying, why are you late? You're always late. You know, he would say like something like, oh, I'm scared we're going to miss the beginning of the opera. You know, and it changed everything in the relationship because it took it out of the blame realm. Blame is one of the, we say blame is the cocaine of 
intimate relationships, you know, because people use blame to fire up their adrenaline. Gotcha. I know it. I know whose fault this is, you know, and, and to that, that attitude fires up adrenaline and people <laughs> trade in those adrenaline experiences for genuine connection, uh, connection, you know, it's like co- an addiction. Yeah. I actually relate to that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of people, uh, I've, I've had hundreds of couples that tell me they have to get in a big fight to order to have good sex. I call that having a wargasm rather than <laughs> orgasm. This week's episode is brought to you by Otherworld. So Otherworld is literally my favorite pancake company, period, full stop. I love this brand. I was actually just in LA recording this with Gay in LA or actually in Ojai. I brought these with me. I had an event in the house that we were staying in and I made sure that those pancakes were there because they are truly the best. I want everyone to try them. They're made out of zucchini and dates. They taste amazing. Like I actually can't even believe that they taste as good as they are for how clean those ingredients are. I have been eating them for a really long time. I've converted my entire family to be purchasers of other worlds because they also, they just love it. It feels good in the system. It's not one of those things that you eat a pancake and then you feel like really lethargic after. I actually feel amazing. It feels nourishing. It feels like it really gave everything. I feel like it really just like nourishes every part of your body. So I highly recommend it. The Otherworld team is giving Active Ingredient listeners 15% off your order if you use code ACTIVE, A-C-T-I-V-E, and it's fall. I feel like this is the vibe. Like right now when the weather is like getting a little cooler, you're making a pancake, having a coffee, creating a vibe. Like this is the moment. Try it out. They have different flavors. My favorite is original. They also just came out with brownies that I have not tried yet, and I literally cannot wait. So check them out at Eat Other World and use code ACTIVE, A-C-T-I-V-E, at checkout for 15% off your order. The code is A-C-T-I-V-E. Check it out. And if you try it, please let me know. Okay, so how do you rectify that? So you identify that you're scared. Also, what are we so scared of? Well, there are only a few things. A big one is I would say that most, if not many, people carry around a fear inside that there's something fundamentally missing in them or something fundamentally wrong. I'm the wrong skin color or I'm the wrong weight or I'm the wrong gender or I'm wrong because I did something so bad when I was 14 that I can never be forgiven for that. You know, there's always something that they feel is the reason that they can't have all the love they need in the world. And so that feeling of fundamental flawedness is what I call it. Uh, having Feeling like you have a fundamental flaw in you. That's a very big one. And it's a big one, you know, like I, I, I think I was telling a class the other day, or maybe, maybe it was on an interview, but I was telling about a guy that came over to my house because he was having an anxiety attack. And he was uh, lived up the road from me when we lived over at the beach. And um, I remember we were standing on my balcony overlooking the ocean there. And what he was in a panic attack about was he was going to get his hands the next day in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And they were going to be next to some big Hollywood legend, you know, like John Wayne or somebody like that. And so it evoked this feeling of fundamental flawedness. If they really knew who I am, they wouldn't give me any awards. You know, I don't deserve this. I'm, 
I'm still the three-year-old kid that was hiding from his father's abuse. You know, it brought up all of that stuff. So wherever you are, you know, this, unfortunately, you know, I was able, because of the work we do, I was able to help him kind of breathe through it and get through it uh, fairly quickly. And uh, his palm prints are down there. I've seen the <laughs> screenshot of it. Uh, I haven't seen him in person, but I know that happened. So he was able to show up the next day and put his paws in the in the cement there. But because I always say here, you're only a breath away from turning your fear into excitement. Excitement. You know, fear is excitement while you're holding your breath. If you're holding your breath and being tight inside, it shows up as fear. But if you're, wow, what can I learn from this? It shows up as excitement. How do you actually distinguish between what is something that's worth not doing, like the getting in front of something that's really scary versus just walking on the other side of the street? Because I sometimes get confused. I'm like, is this resistance? Is this an upper limit problem? Is this me holding back? Or is this just the wise thing to not do right now? I can't sometimes tell what's what. Yes. And let me point out to you that you are a very young person. You have a lot of life and living to do, and one of the things that you're doing at this stage of your life is polishing up that distinction between that. And I cannot, I can give you some general ideas, but that's your practice, is you're going to have to keep practicing and assessing situations and finding out, oh, okay, there wasn't any actual danger there. That was just a danger I was creating in my mind. And, ah, let me feel the fear of that. And, making those kind of discriminations in your mind. But that's that's your practice, and, and it is practice. I want to tell you that it's easy, but it takes practice. Right. Because it's easy to suddenly tell the difference between what is internally manufactured fear about something that I'm creating in my mind and what is real out here. You know, picturing a barking dog is one thing, but having a barking dog on a leash jumping at you is a whole different thing. And most of us have learned to respond so much that the fears to our fears in our minds that we actually overlook the actual fears that are happening in the present. And so I think um, it, it's just a matter of uh, practice, practice, practice. Yes, I guess continuing the practice. <laughs> yes, continue the practice. What? It would be nice if I said, we sell a pill here for yeah, nine ninety five, and uh, but that is, I think, the trillion dollar question is what is the difference? That's where I, I find myself at that crossroads so many times, and I'm like, I can't tell. Is this an opportunity that I'm just scared to do, or is this one that is just not worth it for me? And so sometimes the fear of not doing it, and I think maybe that's something is yes. like identifying with that. Is it coming? Are you coming from fear? Or are you coming from desire or joy? Yeah. Well, we have a process we teach here that may be useful to you. We call it whole body yes and whole body no. How to feel a whole body yes and distinguish that yes from is it a fear-driven yes or is it a driven by your essence? Is it something that would feed your essence, your pure consciousness, your spirit? And so, again, it's a practice thing. You have to kind of keep feeling your way into those situations and finding out, first of all, am I scared about it? Because, you see, you can turn that fear into excitement by just breathing with it and opening up to it and inquiring into it. Hmm, 
Am I afraid right now that there's something fundamentally flawed about myself? Or another big fear that people, especially seekers, suffer from is what I call a fear of outshining. They're afraid to really let themselves shine and let their genius be known in the world. They're afraid that it would steal light from somebody else or somebody else needs it more. You know, that people in our world are often very compassionate and they stand back to let the other person go through the door, you know, that kind of thing. But my message is don't hold back your light for fear that other people won't like it or it will have a negative effect. Go ahead and let your light shine because it could just enlighten somebody else that needs that kind of moment of spark too, that allow it to be okay to let your light shine fully and let it be okay to have that light ignite other people. Why are we so scared of being seen? It's so true. And I think you nailed it on that, like especially seekers. And I think you talked about like that, you know, we have a lot of empathy, I guess, or that we just want everyone else to have it. But like even deeper than that, like why are we so scared of being seen? Mostly because we got punished for it early on in our life. You know, like John, uh, did you ever read any of John Bradshaw's book? No. He had one book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. He, he was telling a story about when he was four years old. He was very precocious and he was trying out new words in front of his family. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is my nose. And he points at his nose and everybody goes, yay. And he said, this is my tongue. And everybody points at it and he points at his tongue and everybody likes that. And then he points at his penis and everybody says, no, 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 no. You know, shame. Yeah, shame. (laughs) And so it may not have been that version of it in your world or my world, but there's stuff that we get punished for, for revealing our essence, for revealing who we are. But there's Somewhere along the line, we get shamed or blamed or punished or just not encouraged for expressing our true genius growing up. You know, you wanted context on the upper limit problem. The upper limit problem is any time you're holding yourself back, it's a moment of holding yourself in where part of you wants to be expressed. There's a great quotation that I use in my book, uh, The Genius Zone. It comes from the Gospel of Thomas, which didn't make it into the official Bible. It's what's called one of the apocryphal Gospels that a lot of people think were part of the Jesus thing, but some people think it was... Deny that. Yeah, deny that. But anyway, this was a really good one because it has some very juicy stuff in it. And the big thing it says is, if you can bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you don't bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And the way I look at that is that human beings are incredibly creative and we we have this bursting creativity within us. And our job is to work with that and bring that forth and refine it. And so many of us get shunted into something else, you know, that doesn't encourage our creative expression. And as you get older, you will find, um, I I forgot to ask, are you in your 20s or your... I'm 31. 31. Okay. Uh, I have a hard time. I'm 77 now. So (laughs) everybody under 50 looks like they're about 16. (laughs) That is so nice. Let's go with 20. Okay. (laughs) But see, uh, our job in our 20s is most of us don't realize, but one of our jobs is to experiment. You know, in developmental psychology, the old saying is 
In your 20s, you experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you enjoy your life. I think we should enjoy our life all the time. But in fact, I mean, if I look at my 20s, when I started my 20s, I I dropped out of college when I was 20 because I was horrendously bored. I became a full-time disc jockey at a radio station. So I had a completely different career. I went from being a college student to being a disc jockey, and I was pretty good at it. And within a year, I was making so much money at it that it that I sort of had to force myself to go back to college and night classes. But I was very blessed in a way because almost from the moment of that life-changing experience when I was 24, I went back to school and I got my master's degree in counseling. And during that time, that two years, I met one of my professors, Dwight Webb, who told me this one little thing that was worth all the money of being in graduate school and all the work. I was talking to him. I said, Dwight, I'm a writer. I love writing and I, I want to write novels and that kind of thing. But I also have just fallen in love with counseling and working with people. And I mean, it's like I'm when I'm sitting down counseling a person, the hour goes by like a minute. But what do I do? I've got this writer side of me. God bless Dwight. He said, hey, why don't you write about the counseling process, the coaching process, the therapy process? There's so much juicy stuff that goes on, but nobody's really writing anything poetic about that. And so that turned on a light in me. And I went home that night and I, I, I wrote poetry and I wrote something like 20 different poems about the counseling process and different things that came up as I was working with people. And I ended up, I remember 37, I, I turned in 37 poems for my master's thesis. Oh. They they gave me a special permission to do a creative thing rather than, you know, a, a scientific study. And it was life-changing because three of those poems got published in a counseling journal. And one of the professors at Stanford saw them and I got an invitation to go there and do my PhD. And so I ended up kind of hopscotching across the country from uh, uh, New Hampshire to Stanford and then ended up getting my PhD there, which kind of launched my career in our field. So incredible. Actually, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the education system in general? Oh, boy. Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> High level. I'm just actually really curious. Okay. What does Gay Hendricks think about the education system? Well, I can talk about from my experience. I was a university professor at the University of Colorado, teaching counselors, therapists, and everything for 21 years. And even in that wonderful job, it used to drive me nuts that so many of the students had to be put through experiences that were not going to do them any good whatsoever. You know, like they all had to, even though these were master's degree counseling students who were out there in the schools and out there in the mental health they had to do a year of statistics just like they were going to be researchers for the next 40 years, mm -hmm. you know? And truly, I could have taught them everything they need to know about statistics in about 45 minutes. And there's some great stuff you need to know, but you don't have to spend a year doing it. So it used to drive me nuts. Yeah, I asked the question because obviously, like, you are the master of speaking of the zone of genius. And there are so many different niches that were all literally placed on this earth to bring to fruition, right? Yeah. And I find that the system really only caters to a specific type of person and a type of learning and a type. So like I was terrible in school and I didn't like reading. I didn't like doing any of those things. So 
the story that was in my mind constantly was I'm not smart. I'm not good at school. I'm actually incredibly smart. I just wasn't <laughs> learning about anything that I wanted to learn about. Yeah. So I wonder like as generations are awakening and like, I, I'm asking this question selfishly because I do want to be a mom one day. Like, how do you envision or like, what's the best way to go about it when like still today, I think the system is very similar to at least how I was in school. And I want to nurture the next generation to be able to bring their zone of genius out earlier and not have to unlearn so much crap that, you know, like you learn, you think about yourself. I agree with you. And I had um, a moment also many years ago, I was consulting in a school for autistic kids. And that was one of the things that I did a lot when I was first got my PhD. I worked a lot with uh, autistic children. And I was visiting this one classroom. The teacher was teaching communication skills to the kids. And they were, you know, regular six, six year olds, seven years old. And they were sitting in a circle. And the teacher was basically teaching active listening, you know, where one little boy or girl would say something and then she would turn to the person next and say, you know, like, can you tell us what Alice just said? And it was the most beautiful thing that these kids were learning a practical life skill, like when in the first grade. I thought, wow, you know, that's something that we should start doing. I hear so many people's journeys and I hear a lot of the times the story is I was not good in school. And then I found out later what it was that I actually had an interest in and then doubled down on that. And it became extremely successful in that one thing. What's like a tangible piece of advice that we could give the listener. And I also want to hear from you on what your, what your curiosities and things that excited you were when you were little. So it's two part question. Yeah, well, let me start there with the little because the the vivid incident, I've described this in a couple of my books, was um, when I was about five years old, it was my birthday, and all I wanted for my birthday was this particular tricycle. And I got this tricycle, but it was raining, you know, Florida, <laughs> and, uh, in the winter, January, it rains all the time. And so I couldn't ride it outside. And my grandmother, bless her heart, she had a huge living room. She lived next door to me. And so she let me ride my tricycle around the living room. And I remember just being in ecstasy. The first thing I did was I got my granddad to set up with me a big cardboard box in the corner of the room. And it became my office. And I would commute on my tricycle to my office. And I'd sit in my cardboard box. And the idea was that people were supposed to come tell me their problems. Now, this is in the little town, Leesburg, Florida, didn't have a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker or a school counselor or anything like that. There were doctors in town, you know, medical doctors and preachers and all that. But where would I have gotten an idea like that? See, I think a lot of times we come in with something that's our genius and then we get led off down a different track. Like my grandmother, God, she was the most wonderful human being, but she was so set in her ways. She said, I want you to be an accountant when you grow up, because accountants always have jobs. She said, even during the Great Depression, accountants have jobs. I'm terrible with numbers. I've never balanced a checkbook, for example. Thank God I have plenty of people to do that for me now, plus a genius wife who loves to <laughs> balance everything. You know, she's great at details. And 
I've gotten <laughs> to great places in life without ever balancing my checkbook, ever making a budget or a business plan or anything yeah. like that. I've launched and sold seven or eight different bu- businesses and uh, without ever having a budget. <laughs> Somebody did it for me, but I was never in on the conversation. But you knew, like it was like, to your point about what you felt when you had that enlightening experience on the ice, yeah. those two minutes where you felt like you were the unprogrammed version of yourself. Yeah. I find that the mission or the goal of life is unlearning all the programming to come back to that childlike quality yeah. or that those childlike interests, which clearly you have, you're literally in your, not a box in a beautiful home, but you're doing exactly that. It's like I was born to do a certain thing. My brother's completely different. He fixes things. He had ended up, you know, he could build model airplanes and everything like that. And I, uh, he ended up being able to be an IBM engineer and then it ended up having a big, uh, air conditioning and heating company and all those kind of things, but it always involved fixing things and making things and all that. It's like it would be doing the world a disservice. Like you have helped thousands, if not millions of people, millions for sure. You know, that is literally the purpose of this show, the work that you're doing for sure. It's like, I think heaven on earth is if we were all actualized in whatever our genius is. I totally agree. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I mean, I I created a life purpose of wanting to expand my own genius and abundance and creativity every day as I go about inspiring other people to do that. Since I developed that purpose, I've never had a dull moment in my life because here I am, you know, kind of supposedly at the end of my mortal existence anyway, and yet I wake up every day more excited than I did the day before, I think. And I, I've had the experience now of waking up that way for so long that I can't really remember what it was like before I had my genius on the line all the time, because all I do all day and all night is just stuff that I love to do and that's in my genius zone. And that's what I want for my world. I don't know. My wife and I sometimes say we have a 500-year plan. It'll take 500 years for people to get to where they're all living in their genius. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it be, could be quicker. You know, I'm I'm, uh, uh, I'm not going to be around for the whole resolution of this whole thing. But my visualization is that we have a world where people are really expressing their unique abilities and are making contributions to other people's lives. And I've been very richly rewarded for it because not just with money, but I get email. Gosh, I have the best inbox in town. I mean, (laughs) or in the world probably, because every day I get to open my email and hear from people all over the world that are having big leaps. And I love that. I never get tired of reading those things because, you know, like people are doing amazing things. You know, you get an email from a Pakistani woman that had to walk 25 miles to get to the place where she could get hold of the big leap. You know, fortunately, the American embassy had a copy or something like that, you know. But gosh, people do these heroic things to get some wisdom in the world. You know, do you I, think it's because we're like literally being guided? Like, do you think that there's like a force that's like pulling us to get out of this? Why were, Why are we even in this place to begin with? Yes, I believe there is that powerful force of essence of pure consciousness that's leading us toward that. And we're also living in a world where there are counter forces too that, well, you know, if you look at where we are in the solar system, we're about halfway out. You know, if you look at how the spiral of the solar system is, and if you look at where we are, 
we're not down at the center where everything is very mass and crystallized, and we're not way out at the edge where everything is pure space. We're sort of in the middle, and that's kind of a dilemma, and it's kind of an opportunity. But the dilemma is you have to get used to sort of being pulled in two directions at once, pulled toward enlightenment and pulled toward uh, endarkenment, or whatever you want to call it, an unconscious version of yourself. Because we're presented with choice constantly at this stage of our evolution. What is, I have to ask, this is like the one question I needed to ask you. What is your, what is in your zone of genius? Like, are there things that you can actually like say that are tangible? Like this is in my genius. Yes. My genius, one aspect of my genius is being able to explain really complicated things in a really simple, practical way so everybody can get hold of them. When I first, I remember when I was a doctoral student, one of my professors asked me, do you want to be a professor or do you want to be a private practice psychologist? Those were the two sort of big things you did when you got your PhD. And a lot of the people I knew went into private practice. They were already driving their Mercedes Benz around and everything, you know, and living in a nice apartment in San Francisco. And I was a a graduate student in Palo Alto. So I, I knew a lot of those folks that went into private practice. But I knew I did not want to put myself in an office for 40 hours a week. And I remember telling um, the professor, I said, I'm going to be a university professor. That's where I'm going. But I'm mainly doing it because I want to invent a whole new paradigm of psychology. I want to democratize what we're doing. It's part of my life purpose uh, every day of my life. I want to be engaged with learning more myself about how to love myself more and how to access more my creativity. I've gotten more creative in the past 10 years. You know, old people are supposed to be less creative, I guess, but I didn't get the memo, you know. Uh, I love that. I also, you, you talked about 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, but what happens in your 60s and 70s? In your 50s, 60s, and 70s, well, in your 50s, Eric Erickson, the great developmental psychologist, says your developmental crisis in your 50s is between creativity and stagnation. That it's so easy in your 50s to rest on your laurels or give up or just sit on your bottom and watch TV that there's a pull towards stagnation. And I bet without too much trouble, you could think of some people you've known in your life who are pretty stagnant in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm curious about the people that have found something later on that did not like stop, that just kept going and figured something out within them. I, that's who I want to be too, because I remember reading a quote from George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright, you know, he lived, I think, to 104 years old. And one thing he said really made an impact on me. He said, I want to be completely used up by the time I die. I don't want to have one ounce of creativity left in me, you know? And, you know, that, and he was wildly creative up until the last few years of his life. And my commitment to my creativity is such that if for some reason I don't feel creative, I can always identify the reason. Oh, yeah, that's probably because I ate three hot dogs at the ballpark last night, you know, at the Dodger game. Do you feel satisfied? And I asked the question, it sounds like yes. I asked the question because I feel like seekers are always seeking. I am curious how you view being content, at peace, full, whole, present, while hungry for learning at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think where I am right now is... I've dedicated my whole life to learning, so I I don't have any 
questions about that. That's my life. It's been for so many years that I can't imagine what the alternative would be at this stage mm-hmm. of the game. I feel like every moment is sacred. Every moment is a gift. I feel every moment like we have the opportunity to retain and maintain and enliven the spark of life energy. I call it genius, you know, and pure consciousness, those kinds of things. But it's that thing that you know, it's your big why in life. And a lot of people don't know what their big why is. You know, they haven't figured out what that thing is that turns them on. But sit down. It was not, you know, it took me once I sat down and really figured it out. It didn't take all that long for me to come up with my life purpose. And, you know, same thing with relationship. I made so many relationships mistakes in my 20s and early 30s. But once I finally got clear, it took me really an hour just to sit down and figure it out, okay, I want relationships that are based on honesty. I want relationships where both people take responsibility rather than blame each other. I want relationships where both people are committed to their creativity. And so that's how I began to create. That's how I created my marriage with Katie. Uh, we're about to celebrate our 43rd anniversary. We're about you guys, to go guys, there's to- such goals. Like, yeah. literally, I met Katie right now, and she's just, <laughs> you guys are goals, truly. Oh, goals. Okay. Well, That's what, the- that's what it, the kids are saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, uh, <laughs> but we created our relationship just based on those kind of principles, and it works. You know, mm-hmm. here we are 43 years later, and I'm just blown away that I get to be married to Katie. I mean, every time she walks in the room, I just cannot believe my good fortune. Uh, I've had 43 years of waking up every day feeling like the luckiest man on earth because I get to be in this amazing relationship with her. Oh, it's just so good. I'm so happy for you guys. (laughs) It really is the most inspirational thing. You shall have it all yourself, my dear. Thank you. That's my life prescription for you. Oh, Thank you so much. What is one thing that you know to be a thousand percent true in your soul that you wish everyone else knew? I wish everybody knew that love is the powerful healing power that it is. That when you have that one moment of loving yourself for being exactly who you are, or you have an experience of loving someone else for being exactly who they are, It's instantaneous. It doesn't take time. It's the most transformative thing. Because love is the only power that has the capacity to embrace its opposite. You can love yourself for not being able to love yourself. And it works just great. So trust and polish up and empower yourself with the healing power of love. Every time you get the opportunity to love the unlovable in yourself or love the unlovable in another person, you're doing what human beings are best at. And it liberates genius, too. The more you love yourself and the more you love other people and love the foibles and love the unlovable in life, the more it liberates your genius. And it's a great benefit to have that every moment of opening your heart more to yourself or to other people in love also enlivens your genius. It's a miracle and it's here to be celebrated. I encourage you to celebrate that every day of your life. I mean, I think we need to end on that note. That was truly, this is honestly a highlight of my life. Thank you for your work. I feel so grateful to be walking this earth at the same time as you. I can't believe that I'm sitting across from you right now, honestly. (laughs) I've literally been saying it since I got the yes that this was happening. For those listening, 
this is clearly just so powerful. It's not even scratching the surface of Gay's work. And I encourage everyone listening to read the book. I've already been pushing this book for as long as I've, no, not as long as I've had the podcast because I discovered it about two years ago. But I just am so grateful for your work, for your commitment to your creativity. You've inspired me. And yeah, I'm just, I know my listeners are going to be so grateful too. Well, I appreciate you for living in your zone of genius and and bringing wisdom to so many people and uh, expressing your own zone of genius at the same time as you're waking up other people. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Trying. Trying. Thank you so much for making it all the way to the end of the episode. You have no idea how much it means to me. And I really do hope that you left this conversation feeling lighter, more in tune, and with some tools to apply to your own life. Please feel free to reach out to me via DM on Instagram. I would absolutely love that, which I have linked in the show notes on any feedback or guests that you want to have on. And if you do have a second, I would really appreciate you giving the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts and a quick review. It really helps getting the podcast in front of more people like you. See you next week.